and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping this week on Thursday, October 21st at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined via video conference by Tammy Luby of CNN. Good morning. Rachel Kors of Stat News. Hi, Julie. And Joanne Cannon of Politico and Johns Hopkins. Hi, everyone. So no interview this week. We will get right to the news. And let's start on Capitol Hill, where Congress is back from its break and wrestling again with the social spending bill that will represent President Biden's domestic agenda, assuming Democrats can reach some sort of agreement. But while they are cutting the bill back in order to win the votes of holdout moderate senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, the Congressional Budget Office is out with its estimate of the bill that passed the House committees last month. And according to the CBO, a lot more people would actually get health insurance if that bill were to pass, right? Yes, I think it was good to finally have some solid numbers just because we've been looking at so many different proposals over the past few months. So I think that was certainly good to have some numbers on the number of people who might get coverage, good to have some numbers on, you know, potential spending benchmarks. Obviously, the House bill is not going to be the final bill. If they get something done on these issues, um, it's going to be scaled back because it looks like the approach will be for now where they're trying to do a lot for a short amount of time and just hope that they can extend those benefits later on. So these aren't final numbers, but they are useful benchmark. And most of the numbers in that CBO report were about extending the the extra subsidies for the ACA and figuring out how to expand Medicaid in the states that haven't expanded it, right? I mean, there's a lot more in the bill, but that's sort of what this CBO report seemed to kind of focus in on. Yes, that's true. And it didn't address the more kind of controversial issue of expanding Medicare benefits, vision, hearing, dental. Um, didn't touch that. Um, was just kind of on these other two healthcare issues that you know have broad support, especially among House Democrats, but really in the whole Democratic caucus. It's just a matter of how much they can do. And apparently, that's the the sticking point now. They can expand some of these coverage issues, but the it turns out that the, these Medicare benefits are pretty expensive to add to it, right? Depends how you do the math. Yes. <laughs> you can delay them for a while. There's some fancy budget work you can do to make them look less expensive. There's different options for making the benefits more generous or less generous to kind of make sure kind of that number kind of comes in where they need it to come in. But As a whole, yes, it's expensive, though, as I think it came up in a hearing yesterday, it doesn't necessarily affect the solvency of the program itself. You know, it's really complicated how it's financed, but it's kind of different streams of funding. But yes, it's expensive. Yes. I think for people who who don't quite understand that Medicare, the only part of Medicare that can quote unquote go insolvent is Medicare Part A. And that's the part that funds hospital and some nursing home care. Pretty much everything else is in other parts of Medicare, which take money from the, the general fund. So they can't technically become insolvent. But the complaints about, you know, Medicare solvency always say, we can't add things to Medicare because it'll make it insolvent faster, which it really won't. It just depends on how complicated Medicare is. One other thing that, that struck me on the CBO report is they were um, forecasting an erosion of job of employment-based coverage. And they did that 10 years ago when the ACA went into effect. And they were really, really wrong on that. They they had really, pre- I don't remember the number from 10 years ago, but they had predicted a serious, it was big. Yeah. A serious erosion of people who got their 
insurance through their work. It did not happen. I mean, the theory at the time was that people would, uh, that employers would dump insurance and people would go into the exchange because they didn't have a job-based alternative. Actually, employers kept offering it. Um, it, it particularly in a tight labor market like now, it, it's an important fringe benefit. It's something people want to get at work. It tends to be better when you get you know better coverage, lower cost. Um, you know, employer benefits tend to be richer than the ACA. You know, I don't we don't, can't tell yet if they're wrong. First of all, this bill isn't going to become law as is, and secondly, we can't tell what the accurate reality versus the projection. But it struck me that they're still saying that or saying that again, when it was one of the things they were most wrong about last time. I think one of the reasons they were so wrong back in 2010 was that it turned out that the the coverage under the Affordable Care Act was definitely not anywhere near as good as most employer coverage. And I think the theory is now, because of these new subsidies, actual coverage is better. And if the coverage really is good enough to substitute for employer insurance, then many employers may feel more comfortable letting their employees get coverage on the exchange if it's just as good. And I think that's kind of the the bounce. So even though, I mean, I suspect, I'm sure the CBO knows that it was wrong in 2010, but it didn't play out. We, we, we just told them. Right? The way they thought, right? Yeah. <laughs> in case yeah. they forgot. Pretty sure they already, but I also looked at that and I thought, okay, they were wrong because the coverage was really so, so much less generous than most employer coverage. And the whole point of adding these new subsidies is to make the coverage more generous and closer to... Right, but if you end up extending for only one or two years because of the fiscal... Right, then employers won't want to... It, yeah, it won't change. Right. So it, it, it's just a sort of point to note. It is. We it's can a, come back in 10 years. It's it's a serious nerd point, but we all noticed it. So, well, it actually does say that it would estimate a reduction of fewer than 100,000 people without insurance, but it estimates that it would be primarily driven by fewer people taking up an employment-based offer. But yeah, I agree that most people want work insurance because it is generally better even than the ACA plans and certainly more doctors available than Medicaid. Yeah. So, so it, ACA insurance, I mean, the, the, one of the big concerns is that ACA would crowd out employer insurance and that didn't happen because it just was, you know, compared to most employer insurance, it was just substandard and it's better than it was, but we are yet to see how good. And of course, as we just said, this is not the bill that's going to pass. We know because they're they're whacking it. Um, Rachel, what What's the latest on where they are? I keep hearing muttering about how we could get an agreement by the end of this week. That feels unlikely. It's Thursday. What I will say is that I think there has been real movement. Things have been heating up much more than I think they have in the past several months, where we've seen lots of finger pointing, lots of name calling. But now we're actually seeing kind of the sausage making horse trading begin. And we're seeing real meaningful cutbacks to this package. I think it's optimistic to um, imagine that they would have all of the details worked out um, by the end of this month. However, I think what they're kind of aiming for is a framework, kind of an outline to work from where lawmakers feel comfortable moving forward with a separate infrastructure package. So I think they gave themselves some wiggle room as to what they can call success on this issue. But we have seen meaningful progress. I think nobody really, really believes that they're going to meet this have It passed both chambers of Congress by October 31st, but I think they... Uh, things are starting to move in a way they haven't been so far. Yeah, I know. I noticed they came out, I guess the Senate Democrats had a really long lunch on Tuesday and came out and basically agreed that they agreed that they needed to agree. Apparently for the many hours of talking, that was what they came out with. It's like, we must agree on something. What is it? We haven't gotten there yet, but we must agree on something. Right. But that is an important first step. (laughs) 
But I think yeah. Rachel's right. It looks like the wheels have stopped. Like if a normal car has four wheels, this bill has had 40 fall off. So I think that sort of sense of chaos and out of control and, and futility, that dynamic seems to be shifting. I mean, we now can see a potential deal, though not a detailed one next yeah. week. But there does seem to be sort of a shift in realizing that they drove themselves right up to the cliff in a car without any wheels. So um, <laughs> that th- there's a different feel But, you know, it it could fall apart again. It could. And I'm sure it will fall apart and come back together many times before they finish it, because that's how these things go. Well, meanwhile, there are also those annual spending bills for the fiscal year that started three weeks ago, uh, which have now been punted to December. Senate Appropriations Committee Chair Patrick Leahy unveiled the Senate version of the bill that funds the Department of Health and Human Services this week. And like the House version, it does not include the Hyde Amendment, which bans federal abortion funding in most cases and has been part of the HHS funding bill in some form or another since the 1970s. But there's no way Hyde language is actually going away this year, even if the House and Senate Democratic leaders and President Biden would like it to, right? This is kind of progressive virtue signaling. Yes, I think, again, it's difficult to imagine Democrats and Republicans coming together for a kumbaya, for a you know comprehensive appropriations process at the end of this year after kind of all the spending that's going on by the Democratic Party unilaterally, essentially. Um, I think there's more expectations for a CR, um, a continuing resolution, which kind of keeps things where they are. Obviously, they can, you know, have tweaks on top of that. But I think these are Democrat-only bills. And for government funding, they do have to get Republican support. So in the um, Senate, right? They right. need 60 votes. Yes, in or the Senate. They, right. they need either 60 votes or no, no one wanting to filibuster it. <laughs> yes, which I don't think is going to be the case. So um, yes, good to know. Like it is, I think virtue signaling is a good term for it. Um, so it's a starting point, but I think there's a lot, a long way to go on that. I know. I'm sort of, in, and we talked about this a little bit last week, and we'll probably talk about it more next week, about how sort of abortion as a political issue is changing. Um, and we're seeing that very much in the Virginia, not just the governor's race, all the races. Um, but I don't. So, you know, in the past, you just could always assume there were never going to be the votes, even, you know, when Democrats completely in control for getting rid of the Hyde Amendment. But we'll see if that changes. But that's for that is for another week. Um, so speaking of deadlines, the Biden administration has only until November 15th to nominate someone to head the Food and Drug Administration. That's when current acting director Janet Woodcock would have to step down if no name has been sent to Capitol Hill by then. Last week, the Washington Post reported a new leading candidate, Robert Califf, who was briefly FDA commissioner during President Obama's last year in office. Although Califf was approved by the Senate by a very large margin, he was criticized at the time for being too close to the drug industry, which is apparently why the administration thinks that Janet Woodcock can't get confirmed. And Califf was involved in the FDA's approval of an expensive new drug over the objections of its advisory committee, in this case for Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. But it was an event that was strikingly similar to Woodcock's involvement with approval earlier this year of a controversial drug for Alzheimer's disease. So my question for you guys is, can Califf really get confirmed over Woodcock? And if so, what does that say about sexism in science? I think Woodcock also had the opioid issue against her. Some of the senators who were opposed to her are from hard-hit opioid states, New Hampshire, West Virginia. So she's been at the FDA since, what, 94, something like that, 92? 86. I think she's been in her current job since 94 in the FDA since 96, something like that. So she's got a longer trail of things to dislike as he was there for less than a year. 
I, I don't think it's a slam dunk, but I also think they probably did their homework before they leaked it, although I'm not sure about it. I haven't done any original reporting on this, so maybe I'm wrong. With Woodcock, they made an assumption. They just assumed, oh, she did a good job during the pandemic. Basically, it makes sense to have continuity. The Democrats will go with this, and they didn't ask anybody whether that was true. They might have sounded out some of the key Dems on Califf before they let the name leak, although I don't know that for sure. I would say, although I wonder because Caleb was leaked last week and it's been a week and has has not been named, I wonder if they floated it to sort of see how it would play and maybe yeah. they weren't so happy with how it played. Um, which we're really in a time to, running out mode now. I, I was just going to say, which leads to the question, is there a plan B? Or are they trying to sort of jam Caleb through saying it's either it's either him who's been who was approved? What was it? I think it was 96 to four or nobody because November 15th is coming up rapidly. I, I think everybody is still sort of mystified by how it is getting towards the end of October. And there is no permanent leader even nominated to head the FDA. That just seems so strange and bizarre. And as recently as 10 days ago, we were hearing other names, but they were all like grabbed out of the air. <laughs> Well, speaking of the FDA, uh, officials there this week announced proposed regulations that would allow the sale of over-the-counter hearing aids. It's four years after such regs were ordered by Congress in a bipartisan vote, and a year after they were actually due, these cheaper hearing aids could be available starting next year. But honestly, what took so long? And how much would it help if Congress actually does add some sort of hearing benefit to Medicare? I mean, this is something that Elizabeth Warren has really campaigned upon. She mentioned in her campaign, she's really been pushing. It is a bipartisan effort by Warren and Grassley, you know, so I'm not sure what took so long. Maybe they were busy with COVID. Uh, you know, there could be other things. They did have other things, other things to that do. were going on. But, you know, I mean, clearly the benefits that are going to be expanded in the reconciliation bill are still under debate. So we don't know if we're going to have a hearing benefit, although it is one of the the cheaper ones compared to dental. But I mean, it's, you know, certainly really important. I mean, there was a 28 Commonwealth study that showed that 75% of people who need, need hearing aids, you know, can't get them. Kaiser Family Foundation just came out with a report that showed that people are spending uh, $914 out of pocket for hearing devices or hearing issues. So, it's, you know, it's definitely a big need for seniors and it's a really, you know, expensive device. So if they can get it over the counter, it can really help a lot of people. Yeah, I was actually reading up on it and I didn't realize one of the other blocks to hearing aids that the over-the-counter hearing aids would would help is that it's not just that they're expensive and they're expensive. My mom had hearing aids even, you know, from Costco. Yeah, they're thousands of dollars. Right. They cost thousands of dollars. But you need to be seen by an audiologist in order to get, you know, and in a lot of parts of the country, there just aren't any audiologists. So even if you could afford it, you can't find somebody that can actually, you know, help you obtain them, which is one another reason for the ability of, you know, to get them over the counter the same way you can now get over the counter reading glasses, or you can go to an optometrist who can actually help measure, you know, make sure you get exactly what you need. So I think the idea here is to to get something, but it is sort of shocking that it's 2021 and you still can't buy, you know, hearing aids for, for mild hearing loss the way you can buy over the counter reading glasses. Right. And now many, many optometrists just tell you to go buy it over the counter. <laughs> That's right. Unless you have astigmatism. Right. Yes, which 
I do. <laughs> I use the over-the-counter, too. I use cheap reading. I'm actually wearing my real reading glasses right now, but I also have cheap uh, drugstore reading glasses. All right, well, let's turn to COVID. Um, while we are waiting for the final calls from the CDC on those boosters for those who got the Moderna and J&J shots, which is a confusing thing in and of itself, the White House seems to be preparing for a rollout of first shots for kids between ages 5 and 12. Now they got out a little over their skis on the whole booster thing, appearing to put the White House thumb on the scale of approving them before the FDA and the CDC got to weigh in officially. They say that's not what they did, nor is that what they are doing now. Rather, they are getting their ducks in a row so they'll be ready, assuming the science agencies do give the go-ahead. But this is really hard to message without looking like they are interfering with the science, right? You know, I listened to the White House briefing yesterday, and I got what they were saying, but then you watch the news afterwards, and it just gets sort of garbled in the mix, and it does make them look like they're saying, yeah, we're ready to start giving shots to kids. I mean, I think they're not botching the messaging on kids quite as badly as they did with boosters, which was probably their worst messaging moment since Biden took office. It was really a mess. I think they are being a little bit more careful, saying, you know, we're ready when. I I agree with you. It's not crystal clear, but it's not as bad. I don't think it's as bad as boosters. I mean, I think it's more like we're lining up. We're getting the we're getting the needles ready. You know, we're delivering stuff. We're making plans. I I mean, I I don't I agree. It's far from perfect, but I don't think it's quite as cataclysmic. I mean, the booster stuff was a mess. This is less of a mess. I do think it's important for the kids, for for the smaller kids, because they don't want to do it. I mean, you're not going to have mass vaccine sites for for little kids. They're going to try to send it to pediatricians' offices. They're going to do it in schools Um, probably, too, though. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And in children's hospital parking lots, I would imagine, and things like that. I mean, I think that with the kids, it cuts two ways. There are parents who are really, 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 really ready for this, and they just, they're going to line up on day one. And there are parents who are really afraid of it. Um, because kids are not little adults and they're more worried about how it'll affect them in the future, et cetera. And even if the FDA says it's safe and the CDC says it's safe, there are parents who are going to be worried. So I think where boosters, we didn't know what to think. You know, those of us who, do I need a booster? Do I not need a booster? Do you need a booster at 60? Do you need a booster at 70? Do you need a booster only if you have this disease? Do you need a booster if you have that? I mean, the the booster science was murkier and the booster messaging was a mess. So... I, I think with the kids, it's a little clearer. I mean, they're parents who just have been waiting a long time. They're really worried about their kids in Delta. Their kids are in school, and, and they really want them. So I think that for them, it's sort of reassuring. We're ready. We got your needles. We got a plan. I think that's what they want to hear. And the people who are afraid are tuning it out. <laughs> so, um, And I think in a lot of cases, there are kids who are ready. I mean, I know kids who are I ready. I heard a pediatrician. Yeah, a pediatrician interviewed yesterday. said, I've never had kids who've, you know, wanted, ever wanted to come in and get a shot. But these kids want to come in and get the shot. They, you I know, have they kids wanna... in my extended family who want that shot. Yeah. Very, but... very. I mean, I have a kid in my extended family with, you know, two in particular, just three in particular. They're talking about it. You know, like, when, when can I get it? I want to get it. I want to be able to do this. I want to be able to do that. You know, one of them has bad asthma. If you're like nine years old and a pandemic that's 20 months old, that's a big chunk of your life. You can barely remember pre-pandemic if you're a third grader. You know, some of them really want this. Meanwhile, this week on the vaccine front, uh, with a few exceptions, looking at you, Chicago Police Force and Kyrie Irving of the Brooklyn Nets, mandates seem to be working pretty well. So well, in fact, that some organizations that were allowing people to either get vaccinated or get tested frequently, including workers in the city of New York, are now dropping the test option, saying you just have to get the vaccine. Are we going to look back on this later and say, yes, of course, people should be required to protect themselves and their community? Or is this going to mark the start of yet another civil fissure that's going to divide families and states for generations? You know, in New York, it's already causing 
some concerns and issues. You know, there are people who don't want to do it. And, you know, it's difficult even among our uniformed uh, police and firefighters. You know, we just had firefighters come for an annual check in our building. They're not wearing masks, even though our building requires it. And, you know, there's that viral video that's gone on about the police you know, taking somebody out of the subway station because they asked the police to wear masks because they weren't wearing masks, which are required. So, yeah, I mean, you know, these mandates, the vaccine mandates, the mask mandates, they're required, but there are a lot of people in teachers and police officers and firefighters and others who just don't want to get it. I mean, they're in the minority, of course, but they're there and they have families and, you know, other people. So, yeah, I think it is it is causing a split. I, I, the In-N-Out Burger in Fisherman's Wharf in San Francisco, I didn't know there was an In-N-Out Burger at Fisherman's Wharf. They said they will not be the mask police or the vaccine police. And it's interesting to sort of see the way this divides. The U.S. has always had, you know, the whole libertarian streak of you can't tell me what to do with my body. And there are several historians who've written really good essays and books about how, you know, every time there's been some kind of an epidemic or a pandemic that we've had these same kinds of issues for for generations. This is absolutely nothing new. But I feel like with the advent of, you know, social media and instantaneous, anybody can talk to anybody, it just sort of makes it worse than maybe it was in the in the 1790s when they were requiring smallpox vaccinations. Well, that smallpox Twitter was really something. (laughs) (laughs) Can can you imagine if there was smallpox Twitter in 1790? Well, I mean, we saw it in New York with the measles here. I mean, we had a terrible measles outbreak before COVID. And, you know, and and then there was the issue where uh, the schools actually got rid of religious exemption, I believe, in New York for uh, for measles and some other vaccines. A number of states did that. It caused, you know, huge outcry, again, among a small group of people, because we're only talking about a small group of people, both whether it be the COVID vaccine or the measles vaccine. But, you know, they're out there. And, you know, maybe now the the anti-vax movement is stronger now than it has ever been. It's, again, always existed and, you know, it's always been out there. But now it's got more force and probably more adherence. Yes, I think you're right. Well, I want to highlight a really interesting piece from the New York Times this week by sociologist Zainab Tufeki about some of the characteristics of the unvaccinated. Um, they're not just rural Trump voters, as we have, you know, many of us have painted them, but many are people without insurance and thus no source of medical expertise to turn to, people who simply don't trust institutions, and people who are legit afraid of needles. I love this passage in the piece in particular, quote, it may well be that some of the unvaccinated are are a bit like cats stuck in a tree. They've made bad decisions earlier and now may be frozen, part in fear and unable to admit their initial hesitancy wasn't a good idea. So they may come back with a version of how they are just doing, quote, more research. Um, She says that's part of the reason why mandates are actually working so well, that they let these people kind of save face by saying, "Okay, you're requiring me to do it, so I will. Have we been approaching this whole thing all wrong? No, I think that the Kaiser Monthly Vaccine Monitor has actually picked that up, and and much of the coverage of that poll and other polls have picked that up. There's really, um, I mean, I've characterized it as the, you know, when I've written about it, as the the anti-vax versus the vaccine hesitant. And there's the ideologically posed, the stereotype is the high school educated, southern white, rural Trump voter, who's the, and that's not the only person in the anti-vax, but that's sort of a handy way of thinking about it, or a way it's when depicted, and there's truth in it. It's not 
100%, but there's truth in it. And they're just ideologically, I'm not going to get this vaccine. Mandates seem to be eroding it. We'll know more in another month or two, but mandates do seem to be chipping away at that. I'm not going to get that vaccine no matter what, because there's always been an asterisk. They've always said, I'm not going to get that vaccine no matter what, unless I have to to keep my job. So that's the vac- the anti-vax. And the vaccine hesitance is everybody else she's talking about. That's it, It's, the, it's the, the cat stuck in the tree versus the lion. <laughs> Um, so the cat stuck in the tree is people who are, we've seen this in the beginning. It was developed too fast. I'm afraid of the side effects. I, 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 I think it, inter- I heard it interferes with fertility on and on and on. You know, the, the, these, the, the needle, the, the fear of needles is, is another one of them. Um, you know, I heard so-and-so happen, something happened to so-and-so and I don't want that to happen to me. You know, I mean, the Colin Powell thing is a, Colin Powell died of COVID, yes, but he also was an 84-year-old with Parkinson's and a form of blood cancer, which destroys your immune system and means that you don't get very good protection from the vaccine. So, you know, his death may have been a tragedy, but it wasn't a tragedy that proves the ineffectiveness of the COVID vaccine. No, actually, what it proves is that the only way to protect people who are immunocompromised is if everybody else gets vaccinated. Exactly. Right. But I'm not sure that that message is coming out to everyone. No, it's not. But there are people who want to hear and there are people who don't. So, I mean, that's, again, that's that that divide. It's going to, that, that, what happened to Powell is going to fuel both the hesitance. See, it doesn't even work. Why should I come? Oh, why should I overcome my fears and concerns and, and anxieties? Because it doesn't work anyway. I mean, that's not a good thing. And then there's the, I'm not going to take it. See, there's another reason. You couldn't even protect Colin Powell, right? So I thought what she said was, you know, a good recap. I do think that that's, it's not a new discovery. It's, it's been in the data all along and, and it has been covered that way. Yeah. Um, to well, an extent. To, to- to what Tammy was saying, though, about how the anti-vaccine forces, you know, are sort of stronger than they ever were. Um, I think they're also getting endorsement from some doctors. There was news this week from the Republican Doctors Caucus in Congress, which earlier this year actually did a PSA encouraging people to get the COVID vaccine. But it seems that uh, Congressman Andy Harris of Maryland, who did get vaccinated, is also prescribing ivermectin to patients with COVID. So he says, um, even though he's an anesthesiologist by training and specialty, I don't even know where to start with this. This this all came out on a on a radio program that he and his wife were were guest hosting. But he said he's his concern was that he's been prescribing ivermectin, but he can't find pharmacies to fill the prescription for it because pharmacies have been told really you should not dispense ivermectin for COVID. There is absolutely no proof that it works, and there are a lot of dangers potentially associated with it. I mean, we, we so but it's it's hard now. We have doctors who are actually out there. Describing it. I think you see a lot of these, you know, debates ongoing. Um, and there's a range. I think my my colleague um, Lev Fasher had a really good story this week, just kind of laying out kind of the there's all these debates over, you know, hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, and on kind of the other side where there, you know, actually might be some evidence worth debating on kind of natural immunity for COVID. Um, This is definitely kind of on the side of the spectrum that doesn't have a whole lot of evidence or any um, kind of supporting its use. But I think you see that just the bigger picture is that it's been highly politicized in Congress. There are all these, you know, ideas that a lot of Republicans have been pushing that don't make a lot of sense. But I think that kind of seeps into these, you know, maybe more valuable conversations to have about natural immunity, about the words we should use, about kind of how that actually protects you. Should these people be vaccinated? That sort of, you know, more meritorious conversation. Um, I think just the whole climate gets ratcheted up by um, all these other kind of distracting issues as well. So I think it's just a continuation of that. (laughs) That's a good way to put it. Well, we talked about last week some of the dangers to the healthcare workforce, but 
this week I really want to talk about nurses who are not okay. Even before COVID, we were in a nursing shortage as the nation's nursing workforce aged and retired and weren't replaced fast enough by nursing schools who had trouble finding enough teachers, even though there is plenty of demand from students. COVID has made it that much worse. Now we have burnout and suicidal thoughts and lots of labor unrest, uh, adding to what's already a not so great situation. Are we going to find ourselves without the people that we need to care for the sick when we're not really paying attention? Or even uh, uh, there's also an inflationary aspect to this. A lot of nurses are quitting full-time jobs to become travel nurses because they can get paid way more and just basically adding to healthcare inflation and subtracting from basically continuity of care. Right. No, it's a huge issue. I mean, it was an issue prior where you saw I was actually hospitalized for a cat bite last year and during the surge of COVID in New York in the spring. And almost everyone, well, not everyone, but multiple people who took care of me were travel nurses and were making a lot of money, which was interesting. I did not even, I wasn't even aware of that trend until COVID. Um, but no, it's a big problem. I mean, healthcare used to be one of the fastest growing jobs in the U.S. And now we have last month, uh, or in August, actually, a record number of healthcare workers quitting their jobs, 534,000. And, you know, there is a lot of burnout. If you talk, I have some people in my family who are nurses and they're exhausted. And shockingly, you know, they're not getting necessarily the help or the consideration that they need to keep going. You know, there, there's all this this uh, talk of, quote unquote, the great resignation where the the pandemic has made people sort of really rethink their relationship of work to home to, to job. Um, and I'm wondering if maybe it's time for a shakeup in healthcare too. I mean, people in healthcare have been sort of overworked and underserved for a very long time. Maybe it is time to sort of change the way we view the healthcare workforce or we're not going to have a healthcare workforce. Well, I mean, this is one of the things that Biden is saying. I mean, you know, the healthcare workforce is many different people. I mean, you've got doctors, who are making like tons of money, you know, nurses who are sort of maybe in the middle. And then you've got a lot of other healthcare workers who have long not had great jobs where they've not made a lot of money. And, you know, this is one of the things that Biden is trying to address in the bill. So we'll see if that actually happens. But it's all the nursing home and home care workers. Yes. Uh, Respiratory therapists. They were very much in demand. You know, they were saving people's lives. They don't get paid well. And this brings in again also the vaccine mandates because, you know, you have so many places that are requiring vaccine mandates. And, you know, in New York, there's a vaccine mandate in uh, nursing homes and stuff. And some nursing homes have already been struggling. They were struggling before the pandemic. The pandemic made them struggle even more. And now the vaccine mandates are, you know, a third blow. So it's going to be very difficult. But I think the other thing that there were a couple of really good articles this week at the Post and Washington Post and elsewhere on the nursing crisis, Um, the nursing shortage, the resignations, the burnout, the abuse and the mistreatment. One thing I didn't see um, in, in in those stories is nurses tend to be, it's a dispor- disproportionately female profession. And these nurses may well have kids at home who are homeschooling because they're not now, but over the last year and a half um, and dealing with, that's a factor in the great resignation too. I mean, women, women who do not have the support they need, kids for childcare for when schools were shut, when schools are shut on and off or kids are quarantined. That's probably an extra stress 
on many of these nurses on top of all the things unique to the nursing profession 20 months into a pandemic. And the fear of taking home a contagious disease to your unvaccinated child. Yes, there's lots of lots of things. And the disparity of pay between the, nurse, the traveling nurse and the staff nurse is very big. And then there's the small, smaller, poorer hospitals who can't even compete with the bigger, richer hospitals or the rural versus urban on the traveling nurse. The, the, the pay disparity is, is also quite large. So traveling nurses to like relatively prosperous academic medical center are making a lot of money. We will definitely come back to this issue. All right, that is the news for this week. Now it is time for our extra credit segment where we each recommend a story we read this week we think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the list on the podcast page at khn.org and now in the show notes on your phone too. Uh, Tammy, why don't you go first this week? Well, mine makes sense to go first because it continues the conversation we were just having, which uh, Joanne highlighted, which is uh, it's a story in modern healthcare by Jesse Hellman. Uh, called Rural Reckoning, COVID-19 highlights longstanding challenges facing rural hospitals. Will it create momentum for change? And, you know, it it goes over the fact that rural hospitals were having major issues before COVID. They were having issues with payments and staffing, and, you know, many of them were closing. And now, of course, COVID is only exacerbating this, of course, making nursing more expensive and, you know, and having more people quit and leave. So this is just a good piece he highlights two different, you know, several different hospitals uh, in there uh, explaining what their their problems are. And, you know, we'll see, you know, what happens. There are there are efforts to try to help them. There was an extra eight billion, I think, or eight point five billion dollars in um, the March relief bill that was directed specifically for rural hospitals. Uh, and, you know, it remains to be seen. Well, I'm going to exercise the moderator option to go next because mine also builds on the discussion that we were just having. Um, It's a KHN story from freelance health reporter Giles Bruce, which appeared in the Chicago Tribune, and it's called Hygienists Brace for Pitch Battles with Dentists in Fights Over Practice Laws. And it's about something I have covered a lot over the years, something called scope of practice. The idea is that every health professional should be able to practice to the top of their license, meaning the most sophisticated things that they are trained for, except the top of a dentist hygienist license is the bottom of a dentist license and the dentists and other health professionals don't want the economic competition of lesser paid professionals. As a result, we see lots of legislative fights between dentists and dental hygienists as here and doctors and various forms of advanced practice nurses and so on. And the people who tend to lose out are those who can't get any services at all, which is why a lot of these bills get introduced to allow things like dental hygienists to practice without a dentist in nursing homes. But seriously, one of the ways other countries deliver more care at less cost than we do here in the U.S. is that They'd let less expensive professionals do more things. Just a thought. Anyway, Joanne. Um, this is a piece by um, Sam Quinones, um, who many of us have read his book, Dreamland, which was the very readable and very sad book on opioids. And now he's got a book out on, on fentanyl and meth. And there's a very a long but very good excerpt in The Atlantic. It's called, the headline is, I don't know that I would even call it meth anymore. And it talks about how what is now sold as meth is a different chemical composition than the meth that was bad enough a few years ago. This one seems to be... Um, he talked about you know rapid decay that you're it just does terrible damage very quickly it seems to be sparking severe mental illness 
It is a factor in some of the tent cities um, in LA and other places. It is very cheap to make. It is very easy to smuggle. It is very abundant. It is very dangerous. And it's a very long article. <laughs> I learned a lot from that article. And his new book is called, it's a much longer title than Dreamland, The Least of Us, True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth. So it's, it's a weekend read. Sit, sit down on Saturday <laughs> afternoon, but it's good. Yeah, a heavy weekend yeah. read. Rachel. Oh, okay, so my um, story is in U.S. News and World Report. Um, it's headlined, Debt After Death, The Painful Blow of Medicaid Estate Recovery by Sarah True. Um, and I just thought this was a really um, insightful and important portrait into kind of how Medicaid estate recovery impacts gener- generational wealth issues. And just as I think as reporters, you know, we're all thinking about how to cover um, health equity better. And I think this was just... Uh, a shining example of just a really um, complex and kind of um, wonky policy topic that she just really brought to life with great anecdotes, you know, great photos. And it's just a re- really such a sad um, impact on these families who, you know, have just um, dealt with the loss of a loved one. So yeah, I thought it was very moving and just a very important issue to think about. It is a really important issue. I think it's been undercovered. Every It pops up every couple of years, but at some point, someone will really pay attention. All right. Well, that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us, too. Special thanks, as always, to our ace producer, Francis Yang. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at jrovner. Rachel? At Rachel Kors. Joanne. At Joanne Kennan. Tammy. At Luby, L-U-H-B-Y. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. Be healthy.